It is a great honour to be with you here today. It's always a deep pleasure to see an international gathering of brothers, sisters with the same passions, the same convictions, the same desire to make Jesus glorified in all the world. Let's pray now. Our great God and Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom now to know how we may preach Christ faithfully in a post-Christian context, that his glories may shine out and pierce and overcome the darkness of humanism, secularism, pluralism, and that Jesus may be glorified in areas of the world where currently he is reviled. And so, Father, give us wisdom, we pray, and through our time together, may your great Son be glorified. And in his sweet and strong name we pray it. Amen. Would you turn with me, please, to John chapter 18. And in John 18, this famous scene where Jesus of Nazareth stands before Pilate, we see a strikingly modern scene. Here, I'm thinking particularly from verse 33 on, a cultured and sceptical pagan man comes face to face with his judge and he judges him. Or perhaps more accurately, Pilate ignores him. So in Verse 33, John 18, 33, Pilate summons Jesus and asks if he is king of the Jews. And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now this uh, clearly seems like shilly-shallying to Pilate. Am I a Jew, he asks. He's not interested in metaphysics, theology. He wants to cut to the legal chase here. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And again, Pilate tries to bring it back to what he sees as the legal issue at hand. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews. Nearly 2,000 years later, that is very much what characterizes Europe today. Like Pilate, European culture today is sceptical, 
deeply averse to truth. And you don't hear this said so often, syncretistically pagan in its mindset. When confronted with the very concept of truth, most Europeans today feel a glow of sophisticated superiority. They ask, what is truth? And like Pilate, they turn away. And to be clear, it is not that Europe is desperately asking that question, wanting to know an answer. Now, truth in Europe is seen as an exploded old dream of yesterday to be sneered at and ignored. Now, I'm describing Europe. I'm aware that much of this will feel quite familiar in the US. And there is certainly similarity Only the situation is much, much more far gone in Europe. For example, the percentage of churchgoers in the US regularly outstrips that of most European countries and cultures 20 times over. It is normative for European Christians to expect open ridicule on any open declaration of faith. And you can see something of that difference in how European and American politicians treat religion. So in the US, it is still quite normal to hear from politicians references to God. Not in Europe. As British Prime Minister Tony Blair's press secretary put it back in the day, we don't do God. Now, how do we get here? How did Europe get here? Well, the answer depends on who you ask. Roman Catholic thinkers, like the enormously influential Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, argue that the problem really began with the Reformation, with the break away from the authority of the Pope. For... Once authoritative truth was questioned there, well, it would be questioned anywhere, wouldn't it? But the reformers were not questioning authoritative truth. Their argument was that supremely authoritative truth is found in the Bible, not the Pope. Other thinkers have rightly and more accurately pointed to the Enlightenment, that 18th century movement in which, in various ways, reason for the first time was given a magisterial role rather than a ministerial role in thinking. In other words, reason was coming to be seen as the final arbiter of truth such that divine revelation was either declared impossible or it was shorn of everything considered unreasonable. Think of Jefferson's miracle-free New Testament. But you know, the Enlightenment alone doesn't explain the state of Europe. It's part of the story, but it doesn't explain the full story 
It doesn't explain the sheer irrationalism you see in European culture today. How we self-identify, for example. There's another movement. Along with the Enlightenment came a movement that was enormously influential, but which has been rather overlooked. And it's a movement that you can't understand Europe today unless you understand it. The movement was Romanticism. Romanticism was nothing to do with rom-coms and Valentine's Day. It was, in fact, a reaction against the cold rationalism of the Enlightenment. Romanticism wanted to recognize that we are more than just reasoning beings. We feel, we love, we desire as well. And the man who sought to reconcile the spirit of romanticism with the spirit of Christianity was hugely significant. He was Prussian, a theologian, and his name was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Think Frederick, Friedrich, and if you want to get a handle on his surname, Schleiermacher means veilmaker. That's his family name, Schleiermacher. And he's known today as the father of liberal theology. And it's worth understanding Schleimacher if you're to understand Europe today. His career ran from the late 1790s to the early 1830s. And he argued this. He argued that true religion, and Christianity is only a part of true religion. True religion is not about doctrine or hard and fast historical events. True religion, he said, is about a a living, fluid experience of the divine. Sound familiar? Yeah. In other words, don't trouble yourself with any dogmas you don't like. True religion is about a feeling. It's about a taste for the infinite. In fact, he argued, and here's the key phrase, the essence of piety, he said, is the consciousness of being absolutely dependent. Maybe over lunch, write your own definition of the essence of true piety. Schleimacher's was, it is the consciousness of being absolutely dependent. Dependent on what? Precisely, he didn't answer. But with that, Schleiermacher affected a Copernican revolution in European thinking. And let me explain this by comparing Schleiermacher to the great British theologian from New England, Jonathan Edwards. This was, um, <laughs> yes, a great Brit before the king sent them off with his blessing. I'll move on. See, like Schleimacher, there was a similarity. Like Schleimacher, Edwards believed in the importance of religious experience and affections. For Edwards, it worked like this. Here was the relationship between doctrine and feelings. I'm going to quote to you from his religious affections. He said, 
Holy affections, said Edwards, are not heat without light. That's good for a preacher to remember. Holy affections arise from some information of the understanding, some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light or actual knowledge. In other words, the light of the truth of God is what causes the heat of our affections, our awe, our love for him. But the light precedes the heat. For Schleiermacher, it was the other way round. Our feelings are the key thing. They come first and our feelings produce our doctrine. I'm going to quote to you from Schleiermacher. This doesn't happen too often here, I hope. (laughs) He said, Christian doctrines are accounts of the Christian religious affections set forth in speech. Doctrines are the accounts of our affections. E.g., our doctrines are simply our attempts to explain how we feel. Now, this was a revolution. See what's happened. For the first time, human feelings were moved to have the magisterial role previously occupied by divine revelation. Our feelings drive what we know to be the case. And so for Schleiermacher, that meant you don't need to believe in creation. You don't need to believe in the fall. You don't need to believe in a real atonement. You don't need to believe in Trinity because you don't feel those things. Now, Schleiermacher still preached regularly from the Bible. Or the New Testament, at least. What had changed was this. He didn't think the Bible was reliable or authoritative. Because as he saw it, the New Testament was simply the record of the feelings of the earliest Christians. It's just nice to read that, isn't it? That's nice. Now, in all that... Schleimacher believed he was defending Christianity. He believed he was making Christianity acceptable to the spirit of his age. That's the apologist's danger. And so, hear me clearly here, Schleimacher preached regularly and spoke tenderly of Jesus. He never preached Christ alone, but he would speak of Jesus. So he was seeking to defend Christianity. The reality, though, was that Schleimacher was relaying the foundations of syncretistic paganism. Because if my feelings are definitive then there is no absolute truth at all. And you can no longer tell me what truth is 
because my truth may not be your truth because I feel differently. And so I decide by what I feel. Now, for all his influence, Schleimacher, of course, was only one player in that story. And yet he was one of the key players who helped Europe down that path to there being no truth beyond what I feel. And this isn't just outside the church, let's be clear. Schleimacher has gone deep into Christian blood. And it means that European Christians have, to a large extent, become what Martin Luther called theologians of glory. What Luther meant by that is a theologian of glory is one not who appreciates the glory of God. That's not his point at all. A theologian of glory is one who fails to recognize that we are sinful and fallible and therefore one who feels that they can reason upwards from how I am to what is ultimately true, that feels God must be much like me, possibly a little bigger, little better, but pretty much like me. His ways must be like my ways. And the latest latest example of this you see in the Church of England debates over human sexuality just in the last few weeks where certain clergy reasoned upwards from how they are, or people they know are in terms of their sexuality, from how they are to how things should be and are right to be. There's no sense of fallenness there. This is how I feel. This is how I like to behave equals this is right. And it should be no surprise, therefore, that with this reasoning upwards, this theology of glory, in churches across Europe, you'll find a message that has a small view of God, a small view of sin, a small view of salvation, and of Christ the Saviour. And you're left then with a mundane message that does not confront the world, that does not surprise, that does not awe, that does not captivate. And that's within the church. And outside the church, well... The fact that Europe has returned to Pontius Pilate's scepticism towards and disregard for absolute and authoritative truth means we are back with his old classic pagan problems. And so I suggest this. Secularism has in fact proved to be the handmaid of paganism. It is proved to be but the sophisticated new veneer for essentially old pagan ways of thinking. You see, in paganism, where Pilate was at, where so many Europeans are at today, in paganism... 
There is no upright and fatherly providence steering creation. There is no loving acceptance by God. And there is no sure hope. In paganism, we are unloved, unprotected, and hopeless. An example of this, if you want to smell the vibe of it, would be watch a classic secular video walking you through the universe. Just go on YouTube and find one. Introduction to the universe. And listen to the soundtrack. The soundtrack, you're, you might initially think it's to make you feel small and in awe. Actually, it's classic old pagan temple music. It's horrifying. Terrifying. Because this is how it's become in this new post-God world with a sovereign God and sovereign truth removed. People who are looking for self-autonomy have found now they are adrift on a sea that is endless and meaningless. Society has lost the truth in Europe that can give it coherence. And no longer living in a divinely ordered cosmos, people feel themselves in this chaotic and terrifying universe at the non-existent mercy of impersonal and pitiless forces of nature. And therefore, while you find that belief in God is very difficult in Europe today. Atheism is not actually confident. Atheism is shrill in its tone, petulant. Instead, you find, having rejected God and his truth, people are confused, troubled, dissatisfied, They are not confident with where they've got to. They are dissatisfied and therefore desperately distracting themselves on YouTube and everywhere else. So, what does this post-Christian Europe need today? Now, it would be very tempting for me to answer very simply, we'll preach Christ But in fact, hear me carefully here, to say that alone is not good enough. And that's not because Christ is not the answer. He is. But Friedrich Schleimacher himself preached Christ in a way, as an example. The mere name of Christ is not a problem for the post-Christian European today, just as the name of Christ was not a problem for Pilate. Pilate was happy to call Jesus to himself, to have a conversation with him, declare him not guilty. 200 years later, the pagan Roman emperor Aurelian happily added Jesus to his collection of household gods. That's not a problem. No, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is a good year to say it. We must preach Christ 
alone. We must preach solus Christus, which is really the linchpin of Reformation theology. And it is inextricably related to the other four solas. The other four cannot be detached from it. Solus Christus, Christ alone, expresses the biblical conviction that 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and therefore Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. To believe in Christ alone means two things. That Christ's identity is absolutely exclusive and that Christ's work is entirely sufficient. Now, for the first reformers, it was the sufficiency of Christ's work that was the dominant theme against all ideas that masses or works could contribute to our salvation. And none of the importance of that has gone away. The sufficiency of his work. But as well as that emphasis, the exclusivity of Christ's identity is also under attack in Europe and the West and like never before. And today the heirs of the Reformation need to stand clear for Christ alone and his exclusive identity as passionately as Martin Luther stood for the sufficiency of Christ's work. And Europe needs to hear that there is truth, that it is not my feelings but Christ who bears witness to the truth, that he determines truth, that he is the truth, that Christ alone stands at the very center of God's purposes, that he is the sole object of saving faith, and therefore Christ alone must stand at the very center of all our thinking. And yet, it is not good enough merely to state those great truths. They are great truths that we want to state, but merely to state them is not good enough. If we merely articulate those truths of Christ alone you will win applause from the converted, but you'll only antagonize everyone else. Because when post-Christian Europeans hear phrases like Jesus is the only way to be saved, they boggle at the thought that one person or one group of people can be in their minds so fantastically arrogant and small-minded as to imagine they've got the truth and everyone else is wrong. Because In that mindset, truth doesn't work like that. And so to them, religious exclusivity smells naive and pointlessly divisive. 
So we need to do a little more than simply say it. So more than merely stating Christ alone, we need to preach it. We need winsomely to show and embody in our churches the coherence, the goodness, oh yes, and the beauty of this truth. And you know, there is real good news here. Because this has been done already. We're not the first ones who have to do it. This is exactly what the post-apostolic church had to do in ancient pagan Europe. And the man anyone working in Europe needs to read is Augustine. Particularly, they need to read two works. They need to read his City of God, the City of God which confronted the paganism of his day and which mercilessly mocks and demolishes the absolutely incoherent pagan idolatry and its foolishness. And second, and this one really is for everyone, second, they should be reading really the positive counterpart to the City of God, Augustine's Confessions. Because the Confessions showed a pagan audience that true satisfaction... The true satisfaction that all of Europe is rushing after but cannot find can be found in Christ alone. The happiness they're all looking for in all the wrong places can be found in him. And you know, as you read the confessions, Augustine in showing that Christ alone is the satisfaction and you can find true rest nowhere else, he presents this deep biblical view of sin that is so scarily accurate, you feel you're being x-rayed when you read it. And as you read his account of what sin is like, you're thinking, yes, that's me, you've got me. And so he diagnoses you. And forces you to recognize, yes, I am a helpless sinner. And I need a savior. And the only one is Jesus Christ. And so what Augustine so brilliantly does is he proves the truthfulness of our sin and our need for a savior. This, friends, is what post-Christian Europe needs today. It needs to be shown, it needs to be preached why Christ alone is true, good, and that that is beautiful. Why it is beautiful that we have such a magnificent saviour who stoops to save helpless, absolutely helpless sinners. 
why Christ alone is the only solution to this terrible pagan plight of being unloved, unprotected, and hopeless. I'm afraid we in Europe are exporting our problems to the US right now. You're going to get more and more of this in the US. But know this, there is nothing inevitable about Western culture's de-Christianization. Creeping paganism has been checked and turned back before. In Augustine's day, in Luther's day, in Whitfield's day, and each time it has been Christ alone, our helplessness, let me be clear on that, not just our weakness, our helplessness, and therefore our absolute need for such a glorious and unique Savior, his glorious sufficiency, his exclusivity, it's been those things that have been at the heart of paganism's defeat. That's how it's happened before. That's how it'll happen again. The winsome, faithful preaching of Christ alone through Scripture. The fact that helpless sinners need such a glorious and unique Savior. Now Pilate turned away. Many will. But soon after this... Christ was lifted up. He was lifted up from the earth as the Savior on his blood-soaked throne. And when he was lifted up, then he began to draw all people to himself. And that is what happens when Christ alone is lifted up as the way, the truth, and the life, when all his glories are clearly displayed, then he draws people to himself. This is what post-Christian Europe needs today. Thank you.